I'll be reading from John chapter 3, starting in verse 22 until the end of the verse. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples a Jew and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the light of your word that you give and show to us that Jesus Christ is our only hope. I thank you so much for how you loved and sought after us while we were your enemy and cursing your name or harming your own son. You set out your love. And Father, I thank you so much for the words we're going to hear this morning. And I pray that you'll bless Brother Tom and uh, help as he, as he shares for your spirit to move in our hearts to show us what you need us to see and help us to follow and obey the Son. Thank you so much for the life that you've given in him. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving and time with your families. With all the talk this morning about very long-standing marriages and marriages soon to come, I have a question for you. Have you ever been to a wedding reception in which someone from the wedding party tried to steal attention from the bride and groom. Picture a best man who, who's at the reception hall, and just as the bride and groom come into the room, he goes over to the DJ and grabs the mic, and he commences to, to give a 20-minute speech about what a great friend he has been to the, to the groom ever since they were kids. And then when he's done, he holds up his cup and he, he proposes a toast to himself. And then after the toast, he, he suggests that he should get the first dance with the bride. You think that would go over well with the wedding party? Probably not. You and I have been given the amazing privilege of inviting people to the wedding banquet of the groom whose bride is us, whose bride is the people of God. We actually 
between now and then get to introduce people to Him. (laughs) To the perfect bridegroom. To the King of Kings. But are we focusing our attention and the attention of other people on Him or are we attempting to sort of share that attention? Are we, in fact, at times, drawing most of the attention to ourselves? This passage is about two things as I see it. First, our calling to make nothing of ourselves and everything of Christ. And secondly, why that's a no-brainer. Why that's the only way of living for a Christian that makes any sense at all. On the surface of it, this passage relates an episode from the life of John the Baptist. As in an earlier message, I'm going to ask you to assume that whenever I use the name John this morning, I'm talking about John the Baptist, so I don't have to say it every time because it takes as long to say as Bob Deffenbaugh. I've already established that. Uh, If I'm referring to John the Apostle who wrote this gospel, I'll make that clear. The passage talks about John the Baptist and his disciples and and a conversation that he had with them, but the passage is fundamentally about Jesus. It isn't just good information for us to put in our index under the topic of Christology. Like all of the marvelous revelation from cover to cover in the Bible about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the theology tells us how to live. The whole notion that theology and practice are somehow separate categories is not a biblical notion. It's, it's uh, the contrivance of people who uh, perhaps are resistant to applying the truth that God reveals. But this, the reality is this passage couldn't be any more practical than it is. It is, it is bedrock for the Christian life, as are many other passages. It presents a clear and uncompromising assignment to every child of God. And the powerful central lesson of this passage when it comes to how we are to live is we must decrease so that through us, Christ will increase. There are two baptism teams talked about in this passage. There's Jesus who is spending time with His disciples and baptizing. And then there is John and His disciples. Now, Chapter 4, verse 2 points out that Jesus himself was not actually performing the baptisms. And I believe there's a very important reason for that. Jesus is the one that John announced on behalf of God, said that Jesus would baptize in the Holy Spirit. This is not that baptism. The baptism that Jesus, that Jesus' disciples were doing here is, is the baptism of repentance, like the baptism that John was doing. The baptism of the Holy Spirit came later. And Jesus does that one directly, by the way. The passage says that in in on near Salim, where John and his people, his guys were, there was a bunch of water. And I believe the reason that that's stated is to make the point that there were a lot of people being baptized. He had a pretty pretty big following by this point, and there were many coming to be baptized. This had all the makings of a great revival. Many were coming to repentance by the work of God, and John's disciples had come 
I believe, to rightly see the work that they were doing as a vitally important ministry. But there was a real problem with their priorities. Before we get to that, verse 25 just mentions this this argument that John's disciples have been having with a Jew, doesn't say anything more about the man, over the issue of purification. If you think about that, you can see how the baptism of repentance might have been a problem for, for the traditional Jewish mindset. Because the Jews believed, and the Jewish leadership taught, that if you, if you presented all the, mandate, all the required sacrifices, and if you practiced all the required ritual washings for purification, you were clean in the eyes of God. You could come to the temple and have access near to the presence of God. So why a baptism of repentance? Isn't repentance for sinners? That's, uh, that's the mindset that had to be turned away from in order for people to come and have their hearts prepared for the advent of the king whose kingdom they had been waiting for. But when John's disciples brought a complaint to his ears, it wasn't about that disagreement over purification. It was about Jesus. It went something like this. John, you're our guy. We're with you. You remember that carpenter's son who came to you to be baptized? The one you keep talking about? (laughs) We understand he's important, but guess what? Now, he's got a bunch of disciples, and they're baptizing people just like you, like, like you are. And a whole bunch of people are going to him instead of to us, you, John, instead of to you. It's very telling that John's disciples avoid even saying Jesus' name. You think they didn't know Jesus' name by now? They're deliberately diminishing Jesus in order to exalt John, or more to the point, in order to protect their turf, to exalt themselves. John's response is marvelous. (laughs) The first thing that he says in response to his complaining disciples is, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. His point is that he and his disciples would have no one to baptize and neither would Jesus and his disciples if it was not given to them from heaven. And if, and there would be no repentance in the hearts of men if God had not been working in those hearts. John is pointing, the, he's directing the attention of his disciples to the only real source of transformation in the hearts of men. And I believe that's exactly why John is so non-directive with his disciples here, just as he was in chapter 1. Did you notice as you read these passages that John never actually says to his disciples, you guys need to quit hanging around with me and go follow him. He never says that. Instead, what does he do? He talks about Jesus. He proclaims Jesus and the glories and the magnificence of Christ. And then he depends on God to lay hold of men's hearts and to do the transforming work, the the heart work, which is the hard work. (laughs) And that in itself 
is a very valuable lesson for you and me as believers. Our task is to proclaim Christ with our words and to show Him off with our lives and then to know and to pray in the knowledge that the Holy Spirit is the one who transforms hearts. You and I can't do that. We, we, we simply cannot change another person's heart. We can't even change another person's mind. Now, we may find the contrast here between John's priorities and the priorities of John's disciples to be a little surprising, right? Considering how clear John has been from the get-go about his mission to point to Christ. But I believe that the distracted, misplaced focus of John's disciples is a picture that God has included here for us. Because it points out to us our own tendency. The sinful tendency of our flesh to make things about us. John's disciples are all hot and bothered about being upstaged by Jesus and his disciples. They're threatened by the growing success of Jesus' own work of ministry. And they're demanding that John do something about it. Meanwhile, John, the one whose example they're supposed to be following, the one that they're calling rabbi, is rejoicing greatly when he sees what's going on with Jesus. He loves the fact that Jesus' ministry is prospering. That's why why he's here. John gently rebukes his own disciples. You'd expect him to really slap them around some, right? But he, he just... He reminds them that from the get-go, he he made it clear that none of this was about him. It was always about Christ. He says, verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I've been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. See, the friend of the perfect bridegroom doesn't go grabbing the mic so he can get any attention. In fact, he'd be perfectly happy to simply introduce the bridegroom and step into the, into the background and let the bridegroom do the talking. He rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. I love my job. Most weeks... I get to have the amazing privilege of standing here and directing your attention and mine to the glorious word that God has spoken regarding our glorious Savior. So that that you and I together may behold Him and be attracted to Him and see His beauty and His majesty and His grace But as soon as I start to think that this is about me, I get in the way of what God intends to do. And that's true for every single one of us. John the Baptist crystallizes the focus of his work of ministry and ours in one beautifully simple, stunningly profound statement in verse 30. He must increase... 
and I must decrease. Now, if the challenge that was presented to John through his disciples here was a test, then on this particular day, John the Baptist got an A+, the perfect score. If ever there was a man who understood why he was here and what he was supposed to be doing while he's here, it was John the Baptist. And if it matters to you and me why we're here and what we're supposed to be doing while we're here, then we will be paying close attention to what John has to say here. God sets this same essential test in front of every single one of us, not once, but every day of our sojourn on this earth. If we fail the test on a given day, doesn't mean God's done with us. All you have to do is look at God's dealings with his, with the patriarchs in the Old Testament and Christ's dealings with his own <laughs> motley crew of disciples in the New Testament to see that God is amazingly forbearing. But beloved, this is a test with the right answer and a wrong answer. And God intends for every one of his children to become really, really good at passing this test every day. Now, the first thing that has to happen is we have to cross a particular threshold. We have to agree with God about what the right answer is. We have to agree with God that our lives on this earth are all about Jesus and not about us. That's a big hurdle for a lot of people. It's a big hurdle for, for a lot of Christians. The increase of Christ and the decrease of me is not one option among various possible options for how I might choose to live the Christian life. It's the only option. It's not a life that is reserved for certain specially gifted Christians. I must decrease in order that He through me may increase. That is both a necessity and a certainty for every child of God, whether we like it or not. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. It has to be both. It cannot be about me exalting Christ and me exalting me. It can't even be about the status quo, about me kind of clinging to whatever stature and standing I have in the eyes of men while I'm exalting Christ. It has to be about Him increasing and me decreasing. Was there anyone more humble and lowly than John the Baptist? John said, He must increase, I must decrease. It has to be about me exalting Christ at the expense of my exaltation. God doesn't say to us, children, if you'll accept the occasional humblings that come from my hand, then you can be sure I'll exalt you at the proper time. No, He gives us a command. Something we are charged by Him to do. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. So you can trust God. When you humble yourself, you can trust God to take care of you. 
But it's a command. That's 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. See, I must embrace a path of active humility, of self-denial in order for Jesus to be rightly exalted through this earthen vessel. There's no other way that it's going to happen. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Does that sound passive? See, if I don't choose the self-denial, the humility that makes nothing of me and everything of Christ, God will still certainly choose it for me. But He desires that I be a willing vessel, not an unwilling vessel. This is really important, beloved. You can be absolutely certain that this will happen to you. You will decrease so that Christ may increase through you. God's going to make that happen whether you're willing for it to happen or not. But what's so marvelous and revolutionary about God's assignment here is that our decrease for the sake of Christ's increase is a highly desirable state of affairs for us. It's exactly how God's people enter into fullness of joy. And guys, it's the only way that we enter into fullness of joy. When we hear the words, Christ must increase, but I must decrease. We, we have this notion that God's requiring something of us that's going to deprive us of our well-being. We think self-denial is somehow an abandonment of our own good. But if that's what we hear John saying, we need to have our ears adjusted because he's not saying anything like that. That's, that is as far removed from what he's saying as, as it could possibly be. God's assignment to John to make nothing of himself and everything of Christ did not require any arm twisting on God's part to get John to do it. None. There's nothing that John would rather do than to forget himself and make everything of Christ. It's precisely when it ceases to be John's voice that's heard and it is instead only the voice of the bridegroom that John declares this joy of mine has been made full. Is that what makes your joy full? When you get right down to it, the answer to that question has to be yes, whether you're willing to agree with God about it or not. The answer is that fullness of joy for every child of God comes only when we make nothing of ourselves and everything of Christ. That's that's part of God's design. That's in our DNA as His redeemed children. If you truly love Christ and if you're genuinely seeking the eternal well-being of your fellow human beings, you will delight in making nothing of yourself and everything of Christ. How do you feel when someone who's been part of our local church leaves this church and, and goes to some other church? Maybe a big one. And the next time you bump into that person, he goes on and on and on about how wonderful that other church is. How do you react to that? 
Do you thank God in that brother's presence that our shepherd is really good at taking care of all of his children? That he has lots of little flocks and lots of big flocks and he's good at shepherding every single one of them and all of them together? Or do you launch into a monologue with your old friend about how much better small churches are and especially how much better this church is? How very New Testament it is? Whose reputation matters to you? If it's Christ's reputation, that kind of conversation is going to go very, very differently than if you're all about protecting your turf and proving the superiority of your judgment. How about in your marriage? If you're a believer here and, and you're married, for which are you most jealous? Your spouse's affection for you or your spouse's affection for Christ? The difference in the way you approach your marriage, depending on how you answer that question, is like the difference between darkness and light, which we were talking about in the worship this morning. It's a very stark contrast. I'm not asking which is desirable. Both are desirable. It's desirable that you should have the affection of your spouse. It's desirable that God should have your affection and your spouse's affection. (laughs) What I'm asking is, which dominates your thinking and controls your actions in your interaction with your spouse? If you're bent on finding your worth and affirmation in your spouse's affection for you, you're going to be manipulative and resentful and chronically discontented and you'll be looking for every hurt. You know why you'll be discontented? I hate to break it to you, but you're married to a sinner. Wives, if your prayerful resolve day by day is that your husband might behold Christ in you, Husbands, if your words and actions toward your wife are prayerfully chosen so that her affection for Christ might be enhanced through you, then each of you will drop your manipulations and abandon your constant quest to somehow find your well-being in someone who can't even touch your well-being because they don't have the power to touch your well-being. There are so many marriages. God has, has blessed Debbie and me with the opportunity to do a fair amount of counseling in struggling marriages. There are so many marriages in which one spouse or both spouses are looking to the other to do for them what only God can do. And they're finding their worth. They're seeking to find their value, their affirmation, their worth, and how that other person treats them. But that other person's got his own selfish struggles. Still battling the flesh just like they are. In place of all those relationship-destroying pursuits, if you're making nothing of yourself and everything of Christ, you will hand your well-being entirely over to, the, to your faithful God. You're, you will prayerfully seek to be as Christ to your spouse, to love your spouse as God has loved you to forgive your spouse as God in Christ has forgiven you. To serve your spouse creatively. To look for ways to to serve and to uplift and to edify your spouse as 
God in Christ has served you when all you deserved was hell. Knowing what you deserve and then knowing what you've been given by God sorts all kinds of things out. You don't need to look for affirmation from anyone else. God sent His Son to die for you and He's made you His inheritance. Christ's inheritance. When what you deserved was condemnation. So you do those things for your spouse not because he deserves it any more, he or she deserves it any more than you deserve what God has done for you in Christ. You do it so that your spouse may behold Christ in you and find Him worthy of all attention and affection. You stop reacting to your spouse's inevitable and chronic failures as a husband or wife and you start acting on behalf of Christ in your marriage. You start to see your marriage as, an, as a divine appointment, a marvelous opportunity to be as Christ to the person that God has given you the closest and strongest bond with that you'll have with anybody on this earth. In some cases, for more than 60 years. And you'll discover a fulfillment in that assignment, an overflowing joy that can't be touched by anything that your spouse does or doesn't do. And, and the way that happens is when you stop making it about you and you make it about Christ. If that sounds like platitudes, if that sounds to you like, um, like some kind of theory that doesn't work in practice, beloved, you need to repent and believe that God is true and that every word that He has revealed to us is true and that every one of His promises is true. And when you do, when you do, and you buy into what He has declared, and you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and take His Word and throw yours away, you'll see how marvelously the truth actually works. It doesn't work. It's not true because it works. It works because it's true. How about in your workplace? Whose reputation matters to you in your workplace? Christ's or yours? Makes a very, very, very big difference. If your focus is on your reputation and your advancement rather than on the advancement of Christ and His kingdom, you will be an impediment to the work of God in the lives of your co-workers instead of an instrument. You may be an unwilling instrument and a very bad example but you won't be with God's program. You'll be distressed every time your hard work and ingenuity go unnoticed. In fact, that'll be cause for horrible distress. You'll go to great lengths to vindicate yourself anytime somebody who's bent on climbing the corporate ladder just as much as you are decides to use you as a rung on that ladder. You'll be quick to ensure that you, your superiors somehow find out about your coworkers' shortcomings because if you can bump them down one, then that puts you up one relative to them on the ladder. And you certainly won't talk much about Jesus around the water cooler or over lunch with a coworker 
Because that might get you labeled as a hater. And that would really mess up your reputation and your ascent. And because not one of those priorities match up in any way with why Christ saved you and what He wants to do through you, that means God is going to be continually opposing your agenda. That's a very, very unproductive way to live. Because God doesn't forfeit to you. It's unbelievers, by the way, who temporarily at times get to follow their own game plan without opposition from God. Not believers. Never believers. Read Hebrews 12. Read Psalm 73. Now, on the other hand, at work, if your prayers and your words and your actions as you interact with your co-workers are all about them seeing Christ in you and through you, about exalting Him at the expense of your exaltation, then those interactions will be dramatically different, right? (laughs) You'll entrust your well-being to the only one who has anything at all to do with your well-being, ever. Your efforts to make yourself look good to your superiors will be replaced by a willingness to go unnoticed in order to ensure that the good of the company is served, the real good, and to ensure that a co-worker might be encouraged or built up. Instead of joining in on all the complaints about how hard it is to move forward or how clueless management is, you will speak of God's faithful provision for you and your family day by day. And you will speak of your gratitude to God for the job through which He provides for those needs. And when you're treated unjustly or you're blamed for something you didn't do, you will carry on doing your work with all your heart as unto the Lord and not as unto men, knowing that it is the Lord Jesus Christ whom you serve and it is the Lord Jesus Christ whom you are here to exalt. And you'll delight in opportunities at the water cooler and in the lunchroom and anywhere else that God gives you opportunity to sit with a co-worker and to speak of Christ. Christ must increase and you must decrease. It has to be both. And that's not a threat. That's all grace. It's all grace. The day you begin to see God's frustration of your pathetic little agenda and mine as a gracious blessing instead of as a threat, is the day that God's frustration of your agenda will stop driving you crazy and start being cause for great rejoicing. It's marvelous when you get that experience of realizing that God just messed with your plan and you actually feel great about it. If that's not how you willingly live right now, beloved, what's the fix? God's going to do with you what honors Him, but... What will make you willing to forget yourself in order to exalt Jesus Christ? How do you get from a self-important, self-protective, never-contented, joyless way of living to the Christ-centered focus of a man like John the Baptist and to the fullness of joy experienced by a man like John the Baptist? 
who had none of the things that people think are important, that this world thinks are important, none of them. Do you sell all your possessions and give away all your money and sleep on the street in covered, clothed in animal skins and eat nothing but locusts and wild honey? You've heard of PETA, right? The people for the ethical treatment of animals, they will tar and feather you with synthetic tar and artificial feathers. God might someday require something that extreme from you. In fact, He might even someday require that that you literally lose your head like John the Baptist lost his for the sake of Christ. But doing all those things is not what will make you joyful about exalting Christ. John proceeds right here in this passage in verses 31 to 36 to explain to us what will make us joyful about exalting Christ. He explains why it's a no-brainer for us to find the exaltation of Christ to be the most wonderful assignment we could possibly have. And what makes it a no-brainer is very simple. The worthiness of Christ. And that's what John talks about for the rest of this amazing passage. First, he reminds us that he who comes from above is above all. (laughs) See, John sees himself rightly as a mere man, one who is of the earth and therefore who speaks of earthly things. He knows that even his own perception of Christ is limited by his fallen humanity. But in stark contrast to himself, he speaks of Jesus in these verses as he who comes from above, he who comes from heaven, he whom God has sent. Did you know I mentioned this when we did the prologue more than 50 times in this gospel? John the Apostle makes the point that Jesus isn't from around here. That He came from heaven where He has been for all eternity. And because He came down from the eternal dwelling place of God, Jesus, when He speaks, bears witness not to earthly things, but to what He has seen and heard as the second person of the Trinity. Yet no man... According to verse 32, no man receives his witness. Unless, that is, it has been given to him from heaven. That was verse 27. That witness, the witness of Jesus, was given by the Holy Spirit to John the Baptist. And God saw to it that John received that witness. I believe John is speaking of himself in verse 33 when he says, He who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. See, John simply bore witness to the witness of God that he knew to be true. That's what you and I get to do. Verse 34 says, He whom God has sent, that's Jesus, speaks the words of God, for He gives the Spirit without measure. The Trinity is all over this passage and all over this Gospel. Jesus was Himself empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus gives the Spirit without measure to all who belong to Him by faith. He'll talk, Jesus will talk a lot about that gift in chapters 14 and 16. So, when it comes to the, to the worthiness of Christ, so far we've seen Jesus is from above. Jesus speaks firsthand the things of God. And Jesus gives the Holy Spirit without measure. You can add to that verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. How much? 
all things. In the next couple of chapters, we get to see some little episodes of how that plays out. The Father has given all things into the Son's hands. As John the Apostle said in his prologue to this gospel, Jesus is the creator of everything. He is the life, and His life is the light of men. And as we'll see a little later in this gospel, He's also the judge. God has given all things into the Son's hands in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. John 5.23 And finally, Jesus is the one and only source of eternal life. The last verse of this great passage in the last declaration recorded in this gospel from John the Baptist is found in verse 36. I'm going to read you the Holman Christian Standard Version, which is very similar to King James and Old King James in the Net Bible. It takes a slightly different approach than some translations. It says, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. They all say that. But the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Now, some of your translations in the second half of that verse say, they don't say the one who refuses to believe in the Son. They say he who does not obey the Son. I do not believe that John the Baptist is adding good works to the basis upon which we receive eternal life. I believe he's talking about the obedience of faith. There are numerous passages in the New Testament in which a refusal to believe in Jesus Christ is referred to as disobedience to the gospel. Disobedience to the word. I'll, I'll read you just quickly just one example from Acts 14. When Paul and his uh, Paul and Barnabas came to a place called Iconium and they went to the synagogue, it says they spoke in such a manner that a great multitude believed, both of Jews and Greeks. Then the next verse says, but the Jews who disbelieved, and that's this word, the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. What he means is the Jews who didn't accept the gospel, who disobeyed the gospel, because the gospel, guys, is a command to believe in Jesus. I believe John is saying the very same thing here about unbelief that Jesus said to Nicodemus earlier in the same chapter, John 3.18. Jesus said there, it was cited in the worship this morning, he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now John says, he who refuses to believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. See, a man's refusal to believe in Jesus just leaves him in an already condemned state. The wrath of God already abides on him. The only way we go from being children of wrath to children of God is by faith in Jesus Christ. The, the bad news is very, very bad, but the good news is great beyond measure. Jesus saves to the uttermost. The one who does trust in him has eternal life. When? Now has eternal life. Present tense. Jesus is from above. Jesus speaks firsthand the things of God. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit without measure. Jesus has been given all things by His Father. And Jesus is the one and only source of eternal life. 
whoever believes in him passes out of death into life. Is that good enough cause for us to stop exalting ourselves and be all about exalting him? You bet it is. (laughs) Jesus is worthy of all exaltation. We're worthy of none. That sorts things out nicely. If you're more like John's disciples than you are like John, the cure is to look again at Jesus. And again. And again. And again. You might think, well, okay, I'm pretty familiar with what the Bible says about the worthiness of Jesus, but I still struggle daily to make His exaltation my highest pursuit. And that's no doubt true of every believer here. But what I want, what I pray that you'll walk away understanding is that doesn't change the cure. Let's say you have world-class allergies like I do, and a doctor, your doctor prescribes a brand new amazing medication that completely eliminates all the symptoms, but only after you've taken it diligently for a week at every dose interval. So you do that for a week and you start feeling great, better than you've ever felt in years. And then pretty soon that urgency that you felt about taking those pills kind of fades because you you feel all right. And so you forget to take one and then maybe you forget to take another one and another one and then all of a sudden your symptoms are back in full force. Is that because the prescription failed? No. It's because you lost sight of it. You turned away from it. I know that analogy is terribly insufficient, but it it helps me remember that there's something here that never changes, and that's the worthiness of Jesus Christ. His worthiness to be the object of all my attention and affection and trust and submission and obedience never changes. So the assignment's always the same. It's not a moving target. I just need to keep coming back day by day to Him. I need to fix my eyes on the author and perfecter of faith and run with endurance the marathon of this life that is set before me. And when I do, I will get this right. God has made you and me friends of the bridegroom and He's given us the unspeakable privilege of drawing the attention of others to Him. And when we do that, beloved, our joy is made full. Dear Father, You took us who were Your enemies, helpless, sinners, lost, dead, and You turned our hearts. You you gave us life. You literally raised us from the dead. These are, these are souls made alive from the dead. And then, and you made us friends of the bridegroom. And you gave us the incredible privilege of introducing others to him and of directing each other's attention to him. All of us who know him already know that our greatest joy in this life is carrying out that gracious assignment. But Father, we drift sometimes and we ask that you would teach us daily to joyfully decrease so that Jesus Christ may increase in us 
and through us by your gracious work. We ask this in his precious name.